Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your life-giving word. Through it, we look forward to seeing you more clearly and loving you more dearly. And we ask you would answer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, reading 2 Samuel 7 got me thinking, uh, each of us have some monumental moments in our lives, those moments that shape our story and who we are. I wonder if you can think of one or more in your life. The last big one for me was two years ago, my son Sam getting married, and what I remember most about it was the feelings Uh, The feelings I had in the week before, the I can't sit still, I can't concentrate uh, on work feelings. And in fact, it was only after the wedding, uh, after it was over, that I looked back and went, oh, I see why I felt that way now, you know, Mr. Reflective. Uh, One of my children getting married, that's like in the top five or six things that's ever happened to me in my life. It was a huge milestone. Well, 2 Samuel 7 that we're coming to today, it is one of the monumental moments in God's plans for the world. It is one of the monumental moments in God's plans for you and me that have shaped us and made us who we are today. And if you were to ask how big a milestone or say, can you give me some anything to compare it with out of all the chapters of the Bible, I'd number off these people and these passages as pivotal moments in God's unfolding plans. Purple passages, uh, life-changing promises that build on each other, promise that builds on promise. Uh, and that's not to say that there aren't heaps of other important things going on in between or that it isn't equally all the word of God but we're talking here monumental moments and in fact let me encourage you to write these down so you can look at them again later they're Adam and the events of Genesis 1 to 3 they're Abraham and the promises of Genesis 12 verse 1 to 3 and they're Moses and the promises of Exodus 3, and the next one of the same importance, David, and the promises of 2 Samuel 7. And it's not much, it's not too much to say that the next cab off the rank of this scale of promise in God's word, well, it's Jesus himself coming. I should say monumental moments in God's word. Here in 2 Samuel 7, this promise is a powerful, it is as powerful as a nuclear weapon going off. It has as widespread effects as global warming. And its power and effects have spread across the world and down through time to shape your life. Every Christian should know about 2 Samuel 7 and the promise of God to David here. Just as I said a few weeks ago, every one of us should know about King David. And the result will be confidence in God as promise keeper. And with it, joy. And with it, hope. So have I built this chapter up enough for you? (laughs) Uh, Talk about being at risk of over-promising but under-delivering. But let's listen to it together and you can decide for yourself. 
Now, the spark that triggers it all is David deciding to build a house for God to dwell in. Uh, But God's saying back, no doubt with a smile on his face and maybe even a mic drop, you want to build a house for me? Yeah, nah, let me build a house for you. Remember where we've got to, as David said, after an extraordinary long wait, David has finally come to the throne God promised him and all the tribes of Israel have recognised him as their king and his rule under the rule of God has pleased them, has freed them from their enemies and has seen them with the ark of God, the presence of the living God in the midst of them. Which brings us to 7 verse 1. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God is in a tent. What he's really saying is, it doesn't seem right. Now, why should I, the Lord's servant, have the best digs while the ark of God, which represents the one who rules all of us, is kept in a tent? We all know how the hierarchy works, don't we? Uh, Have you ever worked in a large office? Uh, I remember when I did that you noticed that the more important someone was, the more expensive was their chair. And it works the same way with houses and palaces and temples too. In this case, Nathan, the Lord's prophet, gives David the nod. After all, the Lord had clearly brought David to this place and there's a genuine humility in what David's saying. But that night, verse 4, the word of the Lord came to Nathan to tell David, and we'll divide it into six parts to look at it today, where the first one is in verses 5 to 7, which boils down to the Lord saying, I haven't ever uh, had a fancy temple built for me. I don't need a fancy temple built for me. And if I needed a temple, wouldn't I have got someone to build it for me? (laughs) Instead, the Lord reminds David, let's remember how this has worked with you and me up until now. Look at it with me from halfway through verse 8. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and I appointed you ruler of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. The Lord doesn't need us to do anything to look after him. He's the one we need to look after us. But what follows, what he'll give to David has an uncanny resemblance to the great monumental promises he God had made to Abraham, the father of Israel. Promises that while they were given to him weren't for the benefit of him alone. In fact, what we're witnessing here is a narrowing down of the focus of God. It's happened before from all mankind down to Abraham, now to one among the descendants of Abraham, Israel, who will be instrumental in God fulfilling his promises to Abraham. So here's what he's doing for David. In verse 9, he will make David's name great. Uh, 
like the names of the greatest men of earth. And who are we talking about today, 3,000 years later? And in verse 10, he will give Israel the people David rules, as the Lord calls them, my people. He will give them a place, a land, a home, no less, of their very own, just as the Lord had promised Abraham and begun through Moses. And in verses 10 and 11, he will give David rest from his enemies and with him those he rules, receiving the rest, which is the ultimate experience of living in the presence of God, the way God had always intended, apart from the corruption of sin. But on top of that, and unique to David, is the promise that begins halfway through verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. You want to build a house for me, the Lord says? No, let me build a house for you. And it's a play on words, isn't it? David was planning to build a house, a building, a temple in which to place the Ark of the Lord. But there's another way we talk of a house, isn't there? It's as a dynasty, uh, a person and their descendants. I don't think I've ever referred to my uh, uh, family as the house of Cunningham. Uh, Though, you know, the idea appeals to me. I wonder what you think, Louise, should we do that? getting a big no from her but usually it's a way of talking about powerful people isn't it and their powerful lineage uh, like the house of packer of crown casino and media fame marching back from james packer to his father kerry packer to his father frank packer or perhaps more powerful even than them the house of windsor with the queen at its head But can you imagine for just a moment being David, knowing what he knew and what we know about the Lord God in his awesome power and his faithfulness to do what he promises? The House of Windsor may have been around 100 years, 200 or so, if you go back before the name change, but the Lord God promises... Well, verse 16 caps it off. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, hearing those words, hearing the words of these promises, I want to uh, show you something. Uh, Jump over to the second half of chapter 7 for a moment. We didn't read this part, but let me sum it up for you. 
The second half of 2 Samuel 7 can be divided into two parts and I don't think you're going to be surprised when I tell you what they are because when David hears what the Lord says, his response is to praise God and to pray to God. Not a bad model, hey? (laughs) When you hear God's promises to you, praise God for them and pray them back to God. Now, David's praise reflects the two parts of what God's just said to him. In the first place, he's like, you're so right. And who's done what for who? And who am I, he says. I'm no one, and I've received every good thing you've given me. Verse 18 Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And then in the second part, you're making this promise that not just to me, but my family, that my heir will rule on your throne forever. Verse 19, and as if this were not enough in your sight, David says, Sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant and this decree, Sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. If you were in any doubt about the monumental, how monumental the promises in the first half of 2 Samuel 7 are, David's response in the second half leave us in no doubt. And we could go on to notice how for a mere human may mean that or may in fact mean for all humanity. Or we could read on to verses 20 to 24 how David places this moment and this promise in direct line with God's promises back to Moses and to Abraham. But actually I've run ahead a bit here, so come back to verse 13 with me. The Lord says, he is the one, David's son, who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And it seems as if the offspring God is talking about here will in fact build an actual temple in which to place the ark as David's son Solomon ended up doing. But there's still more going on. And even as in many ways David and those who heard this promise then would have imagined Solomon fulfilling it in a significant way. This promise can't be confined to Solomon. And its immensity spills out way beyond Solomon. As the Lord God had called Israel his son and granted his people that incredible privilege of his extravagant kindness, that they should be counted as the household of the Lord. Now that privilege focuses in even further on one who will represent the people to the offspring of David, to the one on whom the Lord's love will always remain and never be removed. To the one who, in verse 16, will remain on God's throne forever. 
And that incredible privilege, well, in fact, the incredible privilege for us today is that we live on the other side of the promise. And like David, we can rejoice in the extravagance of what the Lord has given us, but greater than David, we see the extravagance in the life and work of one man, the one to whom this promise pointed, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. How many times has he referred to as the son of David in the New Testament? Next time you're reading the New Testament, in fact, and the Gospels in particular, keep an eye out for how many times Jesus' descent from David is mentioned. Or he's called a son of David. Or as in the episode of his Jesus' baptism, confirmed by the voice of God from heaven saying, you are my son, as promised to David. The kings of Israel from David's time onward came from his house. They were his descendants. But apart from Solomon, none brought the rule and justice and deliverance and rest that Israel had experienced here under David. Not one until the one who would surpass him, who himself is on a par to none. Remember how Paul sums up his message in 2 Timothy 2 verse 8? Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel it was there in longer form in our reading uh, from Acts, wasn't it? All the promises of God and the promises we see here in 2 Samuel 7, they find their yes and are men in Jesus, descended from David, raised from the dead. And even then, well, they might be initially given to a specific person like David or Moses, like Abraham or Adam, but they're such powerful and wonderful promises. Their benefits spread far and wide, in fact, from Jesus to all the nations, to all people who would put their trust in the risen and reigning son of David. And what God wants from you and I today as we read this promise now, is to trust the one who keeps the promises of God. To trust Jesus, to whom David points us, whose name is greater than even David's name, who is gathering a people of his own who will share with him in his eternal kingdom, in his eternal rest, if you're wondering how this passage applies to you today, well, in the first place is to see how God's big picture connects with even the smallest detail of life. The big picture. The Lord God is powerful enough and loving enough that he has moved heaven and earth to bring history to this point where you and I may trust 
Jesus as our Messiah, as our King, and through him be called sons and daughters of God. And as we've been seeing how a ruler after God's own heart rules through David, so we trust Jesus' commands and Jesus' deliverance and through him, God's presence with us. And it connects in with even the smallest detail of our lives and we can meet those details and those experiences confidently. Whether the circumstances you're in are easy or hard, whether they're favourable or hostile, trust the promise keeper. It may be in the midst of hardship. It may be in the midst of grief. It may be in the midst of COVID. It may be in the midst of uncertainty. But look at his extraordinary track record. Why is it that God's word keeps reminding us of God's faithfulness and keeping his promises? It's because fundamental to life, fundamental to our new life with him is knowing how confident we can be that he'll do what he says. In the face of adversity, we look forward to rest In the face of death, we look forward to our resurrection through him. In the face of isolation, we look forward to being with our Heavenly Father. And you and I, that confidence and relationship shapes our lives every day and today. One last thing. It's not even a new thing. I've already mentioned it this morning. I just want to take us back to it. As often happens in the Bible, we see both the role of a person in God's plans here who is separate to us, but at the same time, who is wonderfully joined to us. What I mean is, as God's king, David was representative of all in God's kingdom. He was first among many. And in that way, his heart points to the heart life of those in the kingdom. And that brings me back to David's response in the second half of chapter 17 and the short version of it I gave before, where it is a model to us of how to respond to God And his promises, praise God for his promises and pray to God. When you hear the promises of God, like we are here today, praise God for them. Thank God for them. 
tell other people who share in them about them. Speak about them to the people you live with and connect with, just like David does here and in other parts of our Bible written by him. And pray the promises of God to God. (laughs) That may sound a bit ridiculous to you, but actually it is profound. Have Have you ever had the experience of not knowing what to pray to God? What to ask God? Well, it's not complicated. Ask him to do what he's already promised to do. As David does when you read on in verses 25 to 27, ask God to do what he has promised. That is the joy of living in his kingdom and of knowing the king. We get to pray, yes, please, please do what you in your power and mercy and wisdom have promised us. As you always have, please, please do that for us. I'll lead us in prayer now. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for this monumental promise in your plans and purposes not just for David's life, not just for Israel's life, but indeed for all of us who have life through the Lord Jesus. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would continue to keep your promises to us as we have seen your greatness in keeping them in the past. Remind us of your faithfulness each day in the joys and sorrows of life. Do give us, we pray, what we need the reminder of your promise, the thankfulness of praise and the willingness to bring them again before you and ask, please, yes, do these for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.